I'm going to have you read with me uh, four verses. I think we have them on the screen this morning, uh, Chris. And as has become somewhat of a custom here, uh, I will read the odd number verses, and I'll ask you to read the even number verses. We're going to read uh, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 of Philippians 4 this morning congregationally, and then we'll back up, and I want to take us through the passage. But could I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word? So once again, I'll begin with verse 1. If you'll read verse 2, and I'll take 3, then you take verse 4. Philippians 4, beginning at verse 1, reads this way. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Beloved, verse 2. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4. Wonderful. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you this morning that This is the day you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, As we sit before your word, with our eyes upon it, our ears tuned to it, our hearts opened for it, we ask that you would speak to us now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, it wasn't long ago, kind of a quiet Saturday morning, a large handful of men and women uh, gathered to assist loading a U-Haul trailer of a dear family in our fellowship that moved away, David and Terry Harvey. And the group that gathered was busy kind of loading their belongings into the back of this U-Haul. Some of you were there. It was definitely a morning to remember. And while we were busy, as the morning wore on, it got later toward the afternoon, quickly trying to get everything necessary into the back of this U-Haul, a very kind servant started going around to everyone that was there taking their order for lunch. Would you like ham, turkey, or roast beef? Mayo, no mayo. Pickles, no pickles. Mustard, no mustard. Bread, wrap. You know, and it was just this beautiful thing. So we're all busy, and all of a sudden the clarion call comes. All right, break. Let's pray and eat. And so we all kind of navigated ourselves into this uh, empty living room and kitchen area and stood around this counter and gave thanks to the Lord. And as we looked down on 
Each plate with each sandwich was the name of the individual whose sandwich that belonged to. To me, that is so beautiful, and uh, I went ahead and took advantage of the moment and said, before we pray, you know what's really special about this? Is that every one of our names is in the book of life. And a kind of a holy hush fell over us. We gave thanks to the Lord and enjoyed a meal. People began to break and go their way. But this morning, I share that with you because we're going to take some time to take a look into the book of life. Before we get there, there's some explanatory, there are some things to explain would be a better way for me to say it. So I draw your attention back now to verse 1 of chapter 4 in which we read, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Long ago, before you held a Bible in your lap, the Bible, of course, did not have sections. It wasn't broken down into chapters and verses. Each book was on a scroll, in fact, History tells us that uh, the original breaking down of uh, the Bible into chapters was pioneered originally by Archbishop of Canterbury back in 1227 A.D. Um, The Wycliffe Bible, soon later in 1382, was the first one to use that pattern of breaking it down into chapters and verses for each book. And later on, we find that in in 1448, a Hebrew rabbi actually did the same thing, 1448 AD, did the same thing to the Old Testament where they followed that pattern and broke each book down into chapters and verses. The Geneva Bible uh, took that same Route and became that became the accepted standard for which we have in our laps today, which made finding a book, a chapter, and a verse, of course, much more easy. As we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, you will find that it actually is the closing verse to the preceding passage, in which the Apostle Paul, as we looked at last week, was dealing with Uh, the citizen of heaven. In verse 20 of chapter 3, where he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself, therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. And so you can see, we can see how uh, logically and uh, 
connectively that that verse 1 of 4 belongs to the preceding passage. He uses the word, my joy and my crown, that word crown, specifically Paul used a word that uh, is in its origin is a word that relates to like an athlete who is given a, 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 a reward for finishing a race. The word there is Stephanos, and it's a crown of achievement. Now, he purposefully did not use another word in the original language for crown, which would be diadem, diadema. Uh, that would be a crown for a king. And so what... Paul is saying to the Christians in Philippi is that as they stand fast in the Lord, as they remember that their citizenship is in heaven, that right now in this life they're simply passing through, that they become somewhat of of his uh, crown of achievement having birthed them in the Lord, planting the church there. And then in verse 2, he moves on to a new subject. You read with me there, as we read it earlier, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now it appears that these two women uh, were a source of some sort of quarrel in the church. Uh, I've heard it said, Men fight, women quarrel. And specifically, if you find God-seeking women that are given to being quarrelsome or having a quarrelsome attitude, it can create a lot of damage relationally, particularly in the church and in the body of Christ. God-seeking women that probably had a quarrel. You might remember, of course, Sarah and Hagar. Now, their quarrel would have been over really their place in the life of Abraham. Uh, Leah and Rachel. Uh, Certainly, there could have been great room for quarreling there between those two as it related to their relationship with Jacob because we can read that Jacob said he loved Rachel. But what I really enjoy about the the detail here that the apostle gives us is that instead of taking sides, the apostle Paul here does not try to solve their problem, whatever problem it was between the two of them, whatever they were quarreling about. The apostle Paul doesn't get in there and get the detail and tell you do this, you do that. No, he doesn't try to solve their problem. He just reminds them to endeavor to focus upon the same ground that they have in Christ rather than the different ground of disagreement. And as a side note, that counsel, that biblical instruction that he gives there is so wise. I would go on to say to us this morning, and you who are watching at home, if you're a Christian this morning, don't ever try to solve another brother or sister's problem for them. Don't do it. Why? 
Because the Bible says that they, whoever they are that are in conflict, they are endeavored to seek to solve that conflict themselves. Remember what Jesus tells us, Matthew 5. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother, paraphrase, or sister, has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. How often has it happened to you? I don't know. I can certainly speak from personal experience that you just want to spend this, you know, use the phrase, quality time with the Lord. And uh, you shut things down, you get to a quiet moment, you start praying and thanking the Lord, and then all of a sudden there comes this thought to your mind about, oh, there, there's this person that either has something against you or you are not quite right with them in your own heart. And you're like, you want to brush it away, brush it away. I'm just, Lord, I just want to praise you. What, what's up with the reminding me of my own problems there, you know, in this moment? And why? Because this heart of ours is this place in which the Lord wants free reign. And so we're given that word in the New Testament that we're to leave our gift at the altar. We're to go to that individual and seek to be reconciled to them. Now, maybe some of you here this morning or, or that are listening and say, well, okay, Pastor, I get that, and, and I've tried that, but they just won't listen to me or they won't receive me. They won't allow me or us to be reconciled. Okay. But you and I are not responsible for, for how the other person deals with our com coming in humility, to ask forgiveness to them of how we may have offended them, hurt them. Please, will you forgive me and go our way? There's a book that circled through our fellowship several years back, and it still may even be on our bookshelf store there called The Bait of Satan. And one of Satan's greatest tools is to get you, as a Christian, in argument, disagreement with another Christian to the point to where you become embittered toward that Christian brother or sister. You become hard-hearted toward them, and the last thing you think you need to do is go and seek to be reconciled to them. <sighs> Not that that's happened to anybody in this room. Paul says, hey, I'm not going to try and solve your problem, but I want you to be of the same mind, you two. Navigate yourselves to a place where you're focused upon your unity in Christ rather than what you disagree upon. He goes on in the first part of verse 3 to say, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, 
And I stop us there because we don't know who the true companion is that Paul is referencing. He's speaking of someone that he has his mind on back in the church in Philippi. But you can take special notice that these women who uh, are in verse 2, notice they labored with me in the gospel. What a telling phrase. They were uh, committed, powerful, effective ladies that served right alongside the Apostle Paul for the purpose of furthering the gospel there in the church in Philippi. They labored with him. And yet, we see that they had a falling out. And you might say to yourself, uh, Iodia and Syntyche, right? Uh, when, when we read it earlier this morning, I think a lot of us were kind of working on how do you pronounce those names. The point being is that these two ladies knew the Lord. They had a strong relationship with God. They served God uh, by furthering the gospel, and yet they, they had a falling out with one another. Jesus talks about the fact that offenses will come. You're saying, well, Pastor, I thought we were going to talk about the book of life. We are, but look what's here. Jesus talked about the fact that offenses are going to come in the life of Christian men and women and young people all through our journey. Luke 17, he says, it is impossible that no offenses should come. The point and the challenge this morning is how are we going to deal with offenses when they come? Are we going to be willing to, you've heard me touch on this before, are we going to be willing to work through the conflict that I have with a brother or a sister? It's called conflict resolution. Do you know they even have a program called Conflict Resolution on school grounds today? When a, a bully kid is doing something wrong and the administration needs to get in, in the middle of it and intervene and, and help these two children resolve their conflict. Do you know that that's not, that's, that's how we grow and mature in life. You can't just write a person off because they think, no. The greater mature thing to do is to figure out how to work through that conflict. I'm sure everyone here knows that already. So the question becomes, are you actively involved in conflict resolution with anyone that you are in conflict with? Be of the same mind. They had a falling out. They served him along with Clement also, there was this uh, notable Clement in the early church in Rome. He had actually wrote two preserved letters to the church at Corinth, but we don't know if this is that same Clement or not for certain. But here's the appropriate question. You see this brief directives given, or that's the wrong word, but statements given about these two women, 
Yodia and Syntyche, and this brief statement about Clement also, who, who served, right? So if your life was to be summarized right now, would you prefer it to be summarized in the way that the two ladies are referenced or the way in which Clement is referenced? And he closes that statement in the last part of verse 3 with, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All of them that he's talking about, these have the greatest honor in all the world. Their names are written in the book of life. So I said we're going to talk about it. Let's, let's take a look at that book this morning briefly, see how much time we've got left. All right. A couple of questions. You know, is there a book? If there is, where is it? Uh, whose names are in it? How did they get in there? Can a name be taken off? The first mention that we have of this book, um, do you know where it is? All you Bible students out there? I know some of you probably do. Go all the way back to Exodus 32. You remember what happened. Moses had come down from Mount Sinai, and what was the first thing he found? All the people had gone astray. They had gotten freaked out. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, Aaron had allowed them to, you know, buy into the fact that they needed to worship something, so they took their gold in the ring. They built this golden calf, and they're worshiping this golden calf, and there's all these abominable things going on as Moses comes down with the law. And he's like, oh my goodness. And he turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, this people has sinned greatly. Exodus 32, 30 through 34, in verse 32, he says, these people have sinned greatly, and if you will forgive their sin, but if not, he says, Exodus 32, 32, I pray, blot me out of your book. Hmm. All the way back to Moses. Moses knew supernaturally, divinely, that, that God has a book. God's response to Moses' intercession was, Whoever has sinned, I will blot them out of my book. You fast forward to the patriarch David. David tells us in Psalm 69, I'll read the first few verses of Psalm 69. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing. I still must restore it. And in verse 27 of Psalm 69, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, 
add iniquity to their iniquity and let them come into your righteous let them not come into your righteousness verse 28 psalm 69 let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous hmm there's a book whole lot different than Santa Claus going around to see who's naughty and nice. Fast forward to Daniel. Okay, Daniel, as he's receiving revelation about the end times and what God is going to do, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since the, there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Daniel 12.1. Jesus himself even speaks of this book. Where? Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. His disciples were like reveling in that. It's like, hallelujah, we're given all this authority and power. And Jesus says in, in Luke 10, 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Boy, that's a powerful statement. We could do a whole study on on how in hyper-Pentecostal circles there's this focus on the, the gifts of power and how you know, wonderful it is to have that and how we're to rejoice that we can have that kind of power. And so Jesus said, no, 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 wait. Even though I've given you that authority in my name, even though as my servant in the world you possess a a certain amount of given ability to watch me work through your prayers and faith. Don't rejoice in that. Luke 10, 20 said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Wow. The Apostle Paul here tells us that those that labored with him whose names are written in the book of life. So definitely there's a book. If you get anything, you walk away today, there's a book in heaven that God has. The rest of the references that we're going to look at this morning come to us in the book of Revelation. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm going to invite you to turn, first of all, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. As we get to chapter 3, I point you uh, to the fact that In most Bibles that you will find, it's red letter. Jesus is speaking. And the letters in the first couple of chapters of Revelation are letters to the churches. 
Now, we understand theologically that these letters were written by John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And this revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ was given to him. And that these churches that are in these first couple of chapters were physical, real places of existence. But they also represent the church as a whole as time would move forward. In the third chapter, the Lord is speaking to the church at Sardis. And he says to them, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, verse 1, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father. And before his angels, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church is beloved. That means that Christ was looking forward into a time yet in the future. John was writing about it, that, that there would be an entity of the body of Christ whose, whose works were defiled. And yet within that body of Christ, there were some that are going to overcome. And he's saying, for those who do overcome, overcome apathy toward the work of God in your heart. Overcome apathy toward the need to continue to get the gospel message out. Are there not still lost people in this world? Are there still not Christian uh, professing Christians, a person who will say with their lips, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but their life is not given over to the things of God and the control of the Holy Spirit and a reverence for the word of God in their lives. That, that a time was coming in the church corporately that that would be the case and there would be some that overcome that apathetic death. I will not blot their names out of the book of life. In contrast, um, we, of course, can look at, at Revelation 13.8. Let's go there, Revelation 13.8.
And we have this great time of trouble on the earth. Read in verse 6, Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Speaking of this Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We have evidence, beloved, in the scripture that there will be some whose names are not in that book. Uh, turn a couple more pages to the right of Revelation 17, 8. Revelation 17, 8. Uh, Pick it up in verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was, was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit to go uh, to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Evidence, there will be some whose names are not written in the book. So, these names in the book, hmm, interesting. Uh, I was given my birth name uh, as a part of my grandfather. His name was Arthur uh, L. Jensen. And so, our mom named me Arthur. And some very fond of that. I, I'm a little bit nostalgic as it relates to those things that I have my grandfather's name means a lot to me and I'm thinking, well, how much is that going to mean in heaven, right? You know, I mean, is, is Arthur going to be important in heaven? Maybe you've never thought about this, but are you thinking your name is going to be important in heaven should you this morning be sitting here listening and know that your name is written in this book? How important is your name in heaven? Well, uh, Ephesians 3, 14 and 15 tells us, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So there is a naming that goes on in the heavens. We are told in Isaiah 65, 15, that God may in fact change a name. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 65, 15, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. Now that he's speaking on behalf of God and he's speaking to those who had disobeyed. And he says, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. God speaking for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. So these Individuals that thought perhaps they were serving the Lord, God's going to deal with them in correct judgment. But his servants, the ones that walk with him, uh, the evidence here is that there may be a name change that goes on. Uh, Revelation 2, 
Want to turn back there? Revelation 2. We're going back and forth a little bit. Not too far. We're in the same book. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 12. Through 17, Jesus is speaking. and He's talking to the church of uh, Pergamos that had settled uh, into the world. And notice, I'll pick it up in verse 12. Uh, the angel of the church in Pergamos write, to that church, write this, the messenger. Here's the message. These things, says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Who do you know that has the sharp two-edged sword? Who do you know that is called in Scripture the word? Did you know that in Hebrews we're told that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So this person who has this two-edged sword, this is the Lord. And he's writing these things and he says, I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas and my faithful martyr was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So, wow, nice standing before the Lord. And yet he says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. You go back to the book of Numbers, and you can read all about Balaam's uh, failures and his faults, referred to as a prophet of God, supposedly to speak for God, but there was this... uh, Gentile king who wanted to take out the children of Israel. And Balak, Balaam rather, said, here's how you do it. You get them to leave their God and mix and mingle with other people. What is it that distracts you and me today? Is it not the things in this world that are so accessible? Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm speaking to myself, not you, but maybe you can relate. It's like, you don't even have to leave your house. Pull out your phone, go to Amazon.com, and whatever it is you want will arrive at your doorstep in about two days. And with that kind of accessibility, oh my goodness, mentally, what is it that distracts you that necessarily you could just have? that won't necessarily encourage you in your walk with God. Thus, verse 15, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. There, he's referring to this distinction between a hierarchy in the church of God and the people of God. Kind of a separation of as it, you know, someone once told me, he says, uh, Pastor, will you pray for me? Because I know you have a connection with God. It's like, hold on, wait. 
We wear the same kind of clothes. We're cut from the same cloth. I am no closer to God than you are. We all come to God through Christ Jesus alone. His efficient blood on the cross of Calvary is what gives us access to the throne of grace. There's no distinction between people here. And Jesus says, I hate that. If you know of an organization, specifically a religious organization, that tries to uplift the the leader in the church, hold on, right here. He's saying, I hate it. Verse 16, repent. In other words, turn and go a different direction from that kind of thinking and that reality, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you, uh, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying in the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? On that stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Blood, that tells me Arthur isn't important in heaven. There's a new name coming and I can't wait to get it. I'm going to wait. We're all going to get a new name, and you're the only one that's going to know that name. So don't hold on too tightly to the name you have right now if you're walking with Jesus. Because Jesus is going to give you a different one. And only you're going to know it. And that's the name that's going to be in that book. There's more references. We're running out of time. Um. Look across the street, Revelation 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And I'm going to close us this morning with over to chapter uh, 22, if you'll turn there with me, closing verse, Revelation 22. I'll draw our attention to verses 4 and 5. Well, verse 3. 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, But the throne of God and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Beloved, there is a book. There are names that will be in it and names that will not. The importance of the name 
really boils down to the one that the Lord will give to those whose names will be in that book. Definitely a book that God has. Scripture tells us it's the book of life. Names that will be there and there will be names that are not. There will be names that are changed. And as Ephesians tells us, through which the whole family of God is named in heaven. Is your name there? Do you know of a certainty this morning that your name that will be changed has already been written in the book of life? Do you know that for certain? Is there any question or doubt at all? Because if so, Today is a day to make certain. Today is a day to know without any shadow of doubt that my name is in the book of life. So I'm going to close this with a word of prayer. I'm going to invite you to pray with me or anyone who may be watching at home online or anyone in our midst that still was not yet sure as they walked through these doors. Will you pray? Father, these truths from your word reach so deeply. They are so beautiful and so true. And they remind us that there is a nail-scarred hand holding a divine pen ready and waiting depending upon what someone may believe. Perhaps our sovereign all-knowing God has already written every name. And yet the scriptures convince us that there is an act of personal volition necessary in salvation. Lord, this morning, if there is anyone in this room that has yet to know for certain that they belong to Christ and their name will be in the book of life, would you speak to their heart right now? Would you allow them to make certain before they leave this place or close this video down or whatever's happening? God, I just ask. And while we are praying, perhaps your eyes are closed, your head is bowed. Is there anyone in this room this morning that needs to make certain before you heard these verses, you weren't sure? Anyone at all? Give it a moment, anyone at all. So Lord, we thank you that by your grace our names are there. We ask that you would 
remind us that you have called us to be set apart. There will be much to overcome. That by the grace of God, you said, he who overcomes, you will not take that name out. Lord, thank you for the promise that whosoever comes unto me, I will no way cast them out. That we are not to look past, beyond, into the past, but we are to keep our eyes forward, setting our affection on the things above and not below. Lord, this morning we, in faith, say yes and amen to all of this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you join me as we close with a chorus this morning? We sing Talks about how what we need in life, what we want in life. And maybe singing this song this morning after being reminded of such powerful truths and how much our, our God loves us takes on new meaning. Let's sing it.